Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Thank you for having me deliver this lecture. This particular talk, um, alas, will have little to do with Lewis's work as much as I know it, but Lewis is a very special place in my um, academic upbringing. I think I started, I got into economics, I've written about this accidentally. I was not planning to be an economist and I kind of defaulted into it because there, there was nothing else I could study at that point uh, that was available to me. Uh, it, it worked out okay. <laughs> <laughs> But, and therefore I was a little snooty about the whole thing. And I thought most of economics was a little bit like, you know, I wanted to study math and it was kind of inferior version of math. It was a misunderstanding of the entire project, but nonetheless, uh, you know, I thought this was a little bit boring math that I could do easily. Turned out that the first thing that I was taught in economics that I thought was really interesting was a, it was what then became famous as, had become famous as the Lewis model, which was from his paper in Manchester School in, I think, 1951, uh, called, uh, called Economic Development with Un Unlimited Supplies of Labor. This paper was, I think, the first paper which I read and said, hmm, that's, that's sort of interesting and surprising. And that, that I think, whetted my taste for economics. So I, I, I do recommend reading it. It is actually... Remarkably, a very uh, kind of you read it and I reread it, and it reads very modern. In some ways, it's, it has this very nice mixture of of uh, sort of empirical institutional observation and uh, and a piece of theory that actually, at that point, people found. Uh, I mean, it, it took people by surprise, which is why it became famous. And I, I think that's uh, it's it's something that made me want to be an economist. So it has had a, a very substantial impact on my life. Um, so with that, let me turn to the subject. So what, I'm talk, what I want to talk about at this point is something that you probably have encountered, which is the, uh, the how do you do effective social messaging? You know, and this is not, uh, you know, during the pandemic, uh, we started with, for example, um, in the UK, that was even more confusing for reasons that I won't go into. But even in other places, there was the first, there weren't enough masks. So the Massachusetts government, for example, recommended that you don't need to wear masks. Then, of course, when masks showed up, they wanted us to wear masks. Then it turned out that uh, there was a political battle over or whether people should wear masks or not. And so we went back and forth between wearing masks and no masks. I think what that highlights is the need for effective social messaging, which changes all the time. So you it's not just that you have to deliver one message, you have to deliver multiple messages, and you have to make sure that people understand that what you said you know, two months ago was the opposite of what you said you're saying now, and somehow make sure both stick. So social messaging is effective, has to be effective, and it's, it's challenging. And moreover, uh, you, you, you want to think about um, sort of uh, the way to get, get it to people, not necessarily just by telling them it, but also because people talk. 
And so messages can both be transmitted through that process and diluted and mistranslated, all of those. So you have to think about how, what you want, want to do given all the forces that a message unleashes. Um, <clears throat> and then I think the, what's reassuring, and I'll spend some time at the beginning talking about that is that we, during the pandemic, one thing, we couldn't do much, you know, what the work we do in, in the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, JPAO, is running randomized controlled trials all over the world. Now, when you are sort of locked down, and there's not much you can do by way of randomized controlled trial, unless you can do it online or somehow uh, using some technology that, uh, that allows people to interact without contact. And we realized that um, that sort of made us look for different things to work on. And one thing we worked on a lot was actually how to get the messaging on COVID right. So I'll, I'll, and it turns out that when you do that, you actually, surprisingly to us actually, we weren't entirely optimistic when we went in. We went in a bit out of compulsion because you know we felt a, you have to do something. B, this is this is uh, one of the few things you can do. So we did it. Turned out it actually did do some good, I think. And I'm going to try start by uh, describing some of the, that work, and then I'll go back to thinking about what that tells us about design of messages, and then I'll come back connected to other other work by us, uh, us and others. So, <clears throat> in um, May 2020. Um, 25 million West Bengal residents were sent a 2.5 minute text message. We're talking about hygienic practices, reporting, and in particular saying that, you know, if you get sick, uh, go to see someone. And the person they were supposed to see was this uh, community health worker. It was, um, it was randomized. There were 3 million people who were in control. So that's a uh, and they got the boring stuff. So the, I'll tell you a little bit about what, what, the, what the exciting stuff was, um, bashfully. Um, and the boring stuff was um, just a set of links to what the government had to say. Uh, the quote-unquote exciting stuff was actually a message from me, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> I, my co-authors persuaded me that they wanted a celebrity and it turned out in West Bengal, in that small corner of the world, I was at that point because of the, the Nobel Prize, I was a celebrity. So they said, okay, fine, you are our celebrity, you send the message. So, we, well, I, so I recorded a bunch of messages, eight of them, uh, actually, I'll tell you about why eight of them later, but they were all basically along the same lines, which is that, you know, they got they had these common messages, which is these are the symptoms. If you have the symptoms, go see someone um, and uh, stay away from other people. And <clears throat> this had very large effects. It doubled the number of uh, reports of health symptoms to the community health workers. That's a, a sort of a number we didn't expect. And it reduced travel beyond the village. We told people don't travel because it was you, you bring diseases back and forth. And that went down by um, 20, 20% or uh, 20 percentage points, so a, a lot, lot. And then the uh, hand washing, this is self-reported, maybe less reliable by, by 7%. I don't know whether people actually remember whether they washed their hands or not, but it went, went up by a bit. Um, <clears throat> We did 
For, inspired by that, we did a, a set of experiments in the US, first one right after that in May 2020 again with 11,000 subjects and another one for follow-up in, in September 2020 with 20,000 subjects. Uh, the, the, again, there was a video not recorded by me, recorded actually by, by healthcare providers um, and uh, about protecting yourself and your loved ones from COVID-19. So what, what should you and shouldn't you do? Um, it was sent, it was a set of white and black doctors did it. It was sent online to, uh, you know, I told you the sample size. Uh, and this, this shows you what happened to knowledge the, uh, the, so, and what's on the scale is the number of mistakes they made. So they were asked a set of questions and zero mistakes on the, is, uh, on the extreme left, six mistakes is on the, ex uh, more than six mistakes on the extreme right. And you can see that basically the orange bars are higher at zero mistakes and one mistakes. Orange bars are the people who got the message. So people, there was a fairly substantial increase in what they knew. Um, and we, we said, well, maybe that's sort of not, 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 uh, uh, not so much. Um, uh, and so the, this, 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 this is uh, uh, what happens to the, to the number of people who want, and we offered people different forms of information. You can click on this and you get some information. So we could calculate the click-through rates and, who, who's demanding which link. And you see that again, the right side of the distribution, which is more links went up and the left side of the distribution went zero links went down. So again, people were asking for more information. So people were actually taking somewhat costly actions. And moreover, uh, we actually sold them masks uh, for a premium, it turned out. Uh, uh, we offered them to buy masks. Uh, uh, at that point, masks were scarce, uh, but, and they were willing to pay more. So these were willingness to pay for masks, and that went up. So people, this was real money they were putting online. So they, this, these were real effects on people's behaviors. Um, we were kind of impressed that there was uh, yeah, better adherence. This is self-reported uh, to protective behaviors. Um, oh, I'll skip this. So then we felt a bit more uh, maybe encouraged, and uh, Facebook approached us to say that, look, you know, we have actually lots of uh, advertising time, which we're willing to give to you. So we, we organized uh, two experiments, one at Christmas, one at Thanksgiving, both were essentially identical experiments where the message on Facebook, which is when you're watching, instead of an ad, what would pop up is a message with a video from some set of healthcare providers, um, and, you know, 12 million saw the me message, and there were at least 31 million total video posts at Thanksgiving, and, and there was 81 million at Christmas, so large, I mean, Facebook has reach. Uh, you might not love Facebook, but nonetheless, it, it has reach. Um, and the randomization was at the zip code level in the U.S., 800 counties, so quite large experiment. And what we're looking for is discouraging people from visiting their elderly relatives. And this was the thing you're supposed to do in the US at Thanksgiving and Christmas, you're supposed to go visit your, you know, your grandmother or something. And the, the whole thing was, don't do it, you'll bring them COVID. And this was a time when a lot of people were dying from COVID. 
this is before uh, any uh, vaccines were available. So this, this is a time when this, this is really was the one thing you could do is avoid con contact. And um, the experiment, these were the same states. I want to emphasize this because this is the only thing, reason to show these is that this, this, these were in, not necessarily just in Massachusetts, which is famously open and liberal or whatever. These were all over the country, including in the deep south. Uh, so um, this is this is includes much some of the more conservative reasons. And that's I say that with a purpose. Um, you can see that travel went down two days before Thanksgiving. Um, and travel went down two days before Christmas. Not the day before Christmas, the two days before that. You see, you see significant effects on that. And two weeks later, this is the graph of COVID. So the, you can see that the US is the control group and the red is the treated. And you can see that essentially two weeks after uh, you, you, start, you see um, uh, two weeks after Thanksgiving and two weeks after uh, uh, Christmas. And here the effects are probably cumulative because Thanksgiving and Christmas are so close that what probably happened was since people got less of it in Thanksgiving, that kept lag uh, continuing till Christmas. So it's hard to separate them. So we presented together with these, these things are going to be, once you reduce uh, COVID, it's going to continue be, being lower for a while because of course, it spreads to infections. Okay, so think of it as, and so these are significant differences. You know, so there were less cases of COVID in, you know, of the order of about five, 10% less. So not, not, not huge, but not tiny. So all of that is to say, I think effective social messaging is important. Um, you can, you can do it. And, now, what else, but I want to spend the rest of the time talking about not, not that it's, I mean, it's important to say it's important, but I think to go beyond that, to say, what did we learn about design? And there I want to talk about other work that we have done and other people have done. Okay, so this is, well, this is sort of preamble now, now, now in the details. So these are the questions. What kind of message? How to deliver it? Who should it be aimed at? Who should be the messenger? I mean, there's, each of this is a huge question and I will only say small parts of it, but nonetheless, this, these are kind of a useful way to summarize it. So well, the first thing I would say is, I, I told you I recorded eight messages. And the eight messages were different in exactly what we were emphasizing. So some were emphasizing, don't do this because it's bad for everyone. And so others were saying, don't do this because it's bad for your you know, elderly relatives. So uh, private versus social. Or the other one was, you know, emphasizing tolerance for the people who had COVID. There was a lot of animus against people who had COVID at that point, because people thought, you know, boy, people were behaving irresponsibly. There was a lot of, um, you know, strange things happening right in the beginning of COVID. And so, there was a, so a lot of, one of the messages was to emphasize being tolerant about it. And, and that again, you might say could either be good or bad, depending on if the people feel who, who were intolerant hit the message, they would say that, you know, you are criticizing me and therefore they'll stop listening to the rest of the message. So your messaging is always about being 
you know, just at the right point where you are giving people some information that or some idea that they don't have, but not to the point of pushing them to that they start pushing back against it. So there's, there's always a, um, and the, we could detect very small effects because remember we had 25 million people in this experiment. So we could detect almost anything and there was no effect, it made no difference. Uh, these, so you could say what, the, they all had roughly the same effect. So people were, you know, were listening to the relevant piece of information, they were reacting to it, they were not really the, all the other stuff that we were trying to do to target it to them was not really working. And that's the same thing we learned in the US. So in the US, we, this was, remember, this is in the May to September 2020. This is when, you know, George Floyd gets killed and, the, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is extremely active and general resentment of police brutality is at its height. We, uh, we were in, um, living in uh, Boston where, you know, a car was burnt uh, right you know, 200 meters from our house, a police car was burnt. Uh, so it was a lot of passion, uh, I think appropriately, to be honest, um, about this issue. We tried to, therefore, and especially since this was a period where uh, it was very clear that, that um, the death rates among the black population was three times age adjusted than that in the white population. So there was a lot of, a uh, clear um, sense that maybe the target population should be the black population. Okay, so we were very, con very conscious of that. And in particular, we tried to tailor the message by acknowledging the unfairness of this pandemic and by making connections to the Black Lives Matters movement and all, all of those things. So we are trying to target the message in what we thought were sophisticated ways. Nothing mattered. And not only that, despite, I think, whatever uh, we were, uh, our, the prejudices about the Republicans and uh, being somehow retrograde, the impacts of the messages proportionally, the Republicans were much more likely to be, uh, to ignore um, general social uh, messaging. But the relative impact was the same with Republicans and Democrats. So in other words, our attempts to target these messages essentially failed. And that's, there's something important being said. If you look at these are the graphs for the, uh, for the uh, these are impacts, for example, for the willingness to pay for masks, you can see that essentially the the blue bars are the control, orange is the treatment, the people who, uh, and you can see that the big effects are actually on, um, proportionally the effects on the white Republicans and white, white Democrats are bigger than the effects on the black population. Interestingly, the black population was always more careful. It's one of the things they were, they were willing to pay more, they were more, more uh, you know, they were more uh, in, Interest, the you know, interested in everything to do with COVID, the knowledge gap for them was also higher. But nonetheless, you can see that there's a, a sense in which um, it is, even though our message was mostly tailored for a black population, they actually had large effects, larger effects on the white population. And I think that's some a lesson that I want to 
emphasize is that there wasn't much, um, you know, there wasn't much um, our, our um, targeting attempts mostly failed. And I'll come back to that point because I think it's, it's actually saying something important. I'll, I'll come back to it. Um, now, of course, the fact that our messages didn't, you know, the variance on the messages didn't change anything doesn't mean that we shouldn't vary the message. I think more engaging messages are probably better. And there's a nice uh, uh, RCT in a Zurich hospital where they show either, either give people information, the, the, uh, the standard operating procedures, they, you can read it, or they give them a, uh, they give them a, show them a, a, a video, and the video does much better in learning precautions to use in a hospital. So it's not, it's not the case that the more engaging content, and we, 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 we did a similar one a while ago, uh, where we, in India, in Bihar, we did an RCT, where we, we made up a, a sitcom, actually, uh, we, um, where we, we produced a sitcom, which was about why you should uh, take uh, double fortified salt, which is a salt that's fortified both with, uh, with, with uh, iodine and with iron and uh, to get to the take up of it. And essentially, and we get, did all kinds of other ways of giving information, which were less entertaining. And then only the entertaining one sticks, essentially. Three years later, you see only thing that has a durable effect on the demand for double fortified salt is uh, seeing an entertaining video. So I, I, I'm not at all saying that, and, and there's, you know, um, more generally, uh, there is work, you know, Eliana Laferrara's work on access to television in Brazil. Uh, you know, this is just, you know, there's this general claim that you can't affect people's fertility behavior. What they show is that when you look at, you know, a reasonable uh, natural experiment in access to television, uh, you see that watching soap operas reduced fertility by one child per woman. That's a number. That, <laughs> you know, it's not the time they were spending watching the soap opera. <laughs> uh, we did one, uh, and again, HIV is another place where there isn't really social messaging is supposed to not do very much. We did an uh, RCT in Nigeria showing that actually once we did, this was produced with MTV and we show this uh, video to a bunch of people randomized and see big effects on uh, condom use, uh, sexually tr uh, transmitted illnesses, etc. So you do, you do see people reacting. And I think that that's, uh, so I do think that more engaging messages is important. Uh, that's, but I, uh, I, I don't, so, I, but I think the, the, I think trying to tailor it by pressing buttons on people may not be that useful. Um, now, another question is how much information? And I think, so here's one, uh, one experiment we did. I'll talk a lot about this experiment as we go. So I'll, I'll say, give you the details. This was during uh, India's demonetization. So demonetization, what happened there was uh, the, two highest denomination bills were demonetized and people were given 52 days to get rid of all these bills. Okay? That was, the, it was done 
on the drop of a hat. So it was kind of remarkable. And, but of course, it was done so quickly that there wasn't a clear understanding of what that implied. So people wanted new money and there wasn't enough of it. So they kept changing the rules and the rules. And so what you could do with your money kept changing over time. So the experiment we did was after the rules stopped changing, but changing rules means people were very confused. So our idea was, let's give them the information. You know, so and we we picked either two pieces of information or 24 and or gave all 24 to people. And in terms of behavioral outcomes, we have a bunch of them. I'll tell them there's knowledge, but also real, uh, you know, costly behaviors. I'll tell you about them a bit later. And it made no difference. Okay, you, you couldn't give more information. People were, and that's not inconsistent with this nice work by Hannah Truckman, uh, who shows that, so suppose, so this is something that's very real. So, you know, we're thinking about COVID, but do, even during COVID, there was all kinds of other messages coming. There's messages about non-communicable diseases. What about your blood pressure? Shouldn't you get your uh, diabetes checked? Shouldn't, shouldn't, should, should you, shouldn't you exercise more? So messaging is endless. Even on COVID, in my uh, uh, experiment that I described before, the one where there were, we sent video messages in West Bengal, we asked them, how many COVID messages did you get in the last two days? 20 messages. So people are constantly getting messages. Do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. So that's the substrate within which messages operate. So a point I come back to later. Um, so one thing that the experiment um, uh, so, so uh, this uh, Hannah's experiment did was it randomized whether you got uh, you know, one message, um, I, let's say on encouraging meditation and another one on recommending better nutrition. So there were two messages and you got, got either one or both. And you can see that if you get two messages, your ability to remember both of them suffers. So there's information over, overload. Um, now, in our experiment, again, people were getting 20 messages. We sent them a message. Interestingly, what we find is, I mean, we, we can't, we're not structured to, you know, know whether there was information overload or not. We, we didn't vary the, the number of messages we sent. But what we can see is that when you send the message, you get, uh, you get people reacting in ways that, so the mask was never mentioned in our messages. But when you look at the people who got the message, they're more likely to wear masks. So in other words, part of a message is also, there's information overload, but this is the opposite as well. Information, there's information prime. So I know some things, but I, I don't want to think about them. And then you, one more message comes and it reminds you of all the things you have already heard. So there, there's, I think, both going on here. So information is, um, it's not, so in other words, there is information overload probably for sure, but there's also the fact that people are often um, uh, they, saying the same, same thing in a different way might actually remind you of all the things you know. 
So this, in, in, in some ways, it's uh, less clear, you know, whether, whether you should keep repeating the same thing or not is, I, I, I is not entirely clear. Coming to the next topic. So this was about what do we know about the, uh, the content? Now, how to deliver it? So this, this is the experiment I already mentioned, the demonetization experiment. And we had two sources of variation in that experiment. And these were at the village level. They were an experiment in India. Um, we either gave the information to everyone in the village, or we gave it to five people in the village. And then we, we in, in each of these villages, let's say where you got everyone, we again randomized whether we told everyone that everyone is getting the message, let's say, or told, or in, you, the message was blared out with a light loudspeaker, so everybody knew, for example, that it was, uh, everybody had the message, or we didn't tell them. So we, we, so in other words, the first question is, was everybody informed? And that, that's what, what I'm going to call broadcast, or there were some people were informed, which I'm going to call seeding, people with seeds, and they were to spread it. Or we told people, uh, everyone who, that everyone else is informed, that's what I call common knowledge. Everybody knows that everybody knows, or we didn't tell anyone. So people were, you know, they, did, didn't, they, didn't, they were guessing whether they knew or not, okay? So that's, that's the, the four combinations of these two. So we can compare them. Now, what the theory comes from a very nice paper by Chandrasekhar Golabanyan. Um, Chandrasekhar and Golab were our, my co-authors in this particular paper as well, who use a lab in the field experiment, so a, a much more artificial setting, not information about demonetization in 250 villages, but much more small scale, but much more struck, to see if whether people, if you give them information that they don't understand, are they reluctant to ask questions? And, they, and the reason why they, and it turns out, yes, they're reluctant to ask questions and they're reluctant to ask questions because they think that other people think they're stupid if they ask questions. So now think of that, apply that to the context of, you know, if I tell everyone that um, this is the information and everyone has it versus Let's say I tell people this is information, but I don't tell them if everyone has it. Then it's, it's quite natural that you'll think, okay, I know that everybody knows that I'm supposed to know. And they'll think I'm an idiot. And that's what, in fact, what we find in the, we did a lot of focus groups where they say, I, I didn't ask questions because I thought people would think I'm stupid. So on the other hand, if I'm, I know that nobody else except uh, Tim is informed, then it's easy for me, and everybody else knows that, it's very easy for me to go to Tim and say, look, Tim, tell me what, 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 what I should do. Because it's not embarrassing, because I don't know. So it's better, so in some sense, what, informing a few people and making it common knowledge, common knowledge might actually make it better, whereas if I inform a lot of people, then making it common knowledge might make it worse. Um, 
So we measured impact along three dimensions. Was there more discussion of demonetization? Were people more informed? And most importantly, were they willing to take a still legal 500 rupee note? Okay. So we would give them just a gift, or you can choose that, or you can choose 200 rupees which was in then still always legal currency so if you 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 could say the 500 rupee note was made illegal so people might say look you know i don't want that i'd rather take 200 rupees we're sure to get it but in fact if you understood the rules then for a while you were still while the experiment was happening you were allowed to keep the 500 rupee note and it was quite easy to change it so it's it's if they understood the rules they would you know 500 is a lot more than 200 so one day's wage more than a one and a half days wage more than 200 so it's it's quite a lot of money that that you would give up by not taking it so these this is these are uh, this is uh, um the volume of conversations and the uh, the bars are getting the bar, the the somehow it's getting cut off the left bar is seed no common knowledge so i tell a few people and don't tell everybody else then of course not much happens because you know a few people know and nobody else even knows that they know uh, any uh. then there is seed common knowledge which is the next one which is when you give a few people the information but you tell everybody else that they know it the next one is broadcast no common knowledge i tell people the information but i don't make it public and the last one is broadcast common knowledge i give people information and tell everybody else that they have the information and you can see that essentially the volume of conversations goes down a lot it goes up a lot when you know that other people have information and you can you're not supposed to have it and it goes down a lot when you say other people have know that you have information so you don't ask questions now and this has exactly the same pattern for the the demand for 500 rupees so the people actually the people who who have the uh in from who have the lot of conversation they also the people who are more informed they turn out to have more um much more uh willing to just to take 500 rupees than the people who who are less informed so it's exactly the pattern you would expect except that that saying that you should maybe worry about giving away a, you know uh he might tell you that seeding might actually be better than telling everyone and in particular it's very hard we did it because we were an experiment we could do it but in general to broadcast something and not tell people that it's been broadcast is hard so you can't for example take a loudspeaker then it becomes obvious as common knowledge so what you have to do is so in some sense the most natural way of giving information might actually be to seed the information and tell everyone that's relatively easy to implement and uh what's better than the uh, the others that are easy so that then poses the question how do you pick a seed so the, uh, the this is a question that now brings us in the domain of network theory and network theory is exactly about these kinds of questions uh, if i plant a seed at some point how far does it go okay so that's that's exactly the kind of question that network theory can answer the typical framework that's used is you know kind of like an infection uh, i have a neighbor who has a piece of information if he has a, a piece of information then a network neighbor meaning a friend or, or or a relative or someone i'm connected to that person then with some probability shares this information with me um 
I might um, then decide to act on it or not. And whether or not I act on it or not, I might decide to pass it on. It might depend on whether I act on it. If I act on it, maybe I feel like I should be a proselytizer, if not. But so this is the framework that's typically used. This is kind of like an infection model. People are infecting other people. It's sort of like a disease. And again, if you don't get the disease, you pass it on more. Okay. So this is, um, there's a whole uh, set of things you can do to make this more elaborate, but this, this is the general framework that people use for analyzing these things. Now, one thing you should worry about here is um, how long are people interested? So if people are going to be talking about it for a while, it makes a difference because then it's not just the people who are very connected who matter, it's people who are connected to connected people, like a Google rank, basically. That's, but if it's going to be very quick, People are going to lose interest in it. Then inform the most connected people because they're the only ones who are going to talk. Then people will say, okay, that's boring. Um, we're moving on. So depending on what people's, how, how long you think the interest will sustain, you, you want to either do uh, sort of what is sometimes called eigenvector central. That's like the, those who are connected to the most connected people. Or you can choose somebody who's degree central, meaning the most connected people, if it's really going to be quick, or somewhere in between, and there's something we call diffusion centrality. So what we, we, we show in a paper uh, some years ago is uh, there was an, a microfinance organization was entering a set of villages. And when they were entering the villages, they had a fixed strategy, which is to talk to what they call leaders or important people. Important people were teacher, the teacher, the um, the the person who's uh, you know runs the store, the priest, uh, you know, a, a set of fixed people. Now those fixed people in different villages were differentially connected. Some villages, the fixed people were very very connected to everyone. In others, they were not very connected. In other words, their diffusion centrality, their measure of how connected they are, varied across villages. So we could look at what happens if you go from the lowest connected person to the highest connected person being informed. You're always informing the same people, the teacher, the, the priest, etc. But some places the teacher is much more connected than others. You, when you do that, the actual fraction of people who know about microfinance goes from something like 8% to something like 43%. So huge effect on uh, if you inform the right people, that is to say in the village where the people you are informing are very connected, then you get much bigger effect. So that sort of made us think that maybe we should look at people who are uh, so that's the relationship diffusion central seats are better so villages which have more so this, this now, I'm going to skip this. This is sort of a, this, this work about exactly this, uh, you know, well, I'll say it one minute. Um, so there's a question of whether or not, you know, suppose uh, you choose better seeds. Is that worth how much? How much is it worth? Well, it depends again a bit on how important are the seeds in sustaining a conversation. So if it's one short conversation, I tell you once and it's done then in fact, it doesn't make a big difference. Now, if you, but often it's not once, I have to keep telling this to many people and then it spreads. And if that's the case, then it makes, uh, then you really want to have people who are more central. You want to choose central. Now, what we, this was what we did. And then we started wondering, what about 
just people who like to talk, gossips. You know, you all know such people. People who say, you know what? You know what I heard? Uh, yeah, those people. Um, and can we use them as seeds? One big advantage of that is that it turns out, especially that we don't have to know, to know who's central in the network, we have to map out the network, and that's expensive. To know who's a seed, uh, to be a gossip, we just have to ask people, who's the local gossip? <laughs> when you do, we did this. So when you do this, we asked 15 randomly chosen people in every village to say, who will be the best to spread a piece of information about? And it turns out that they all agree. It's, there's always Robin, Robin, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> they, they all name the same person. So 4% of the households are named. And everybody's named this name nine times. So everybody agrees who, who the gossips are. Okay? So, um, and so then we, what we did was we randomized whether you give the information to gossips, you give the information to the village elders, or you give it to random people in the village. And the information was about a, you know, some, a raffle. And that's the difference. Now, if you quantify it, so the red one is the gossip. Gossip is just way ahead. It's a, uh, the gossips are so much better. You can treble the number of people who participate in the raffle uh, you, by giving it to the uh, gossips. So then what we say, well, the problem with this experiment was that, well, but then do you really think this is important? When maybe this, is a, this was about a raffle. Who cares about raffles? But when it's something important, won't you want it from somebody who's really reliable? So, so we, we did another experiment where we said, okay, are there trusted people? We asked the same kind of question, who's a gossip, who's a trusted person, who would you go? And so then we compare draw gossips with trusted people and random seeds. The outcome was the number of children immunized. So this is something that, you know, was much more welfare relevant. You might actually care about it. Gossips are better than random seeds, also better than trusted people and trusted gossips. <laughs> And partly because they are more central for the right reason, because they're talking to everyone, so there's everyone's friend. But also for another reason, we can, because we have random seeds, we can see if, if a, a randomly chosen gossip does better than everyone else. And therefore we can see if a gossip is better than their position in the network. And the answer is yes. They are better than their position in the network. They're such, just garrulous people who want to go out and talk to people, and therefore they, they, they do even, even better than, than their position in the network would imply. So that's one answer to the question. Then the second answer is, do you do, what kinds of seeds? Do they need to like you? So in the US experiment, one thing we did was we varied the identity of the doctors. So they were deliberately, we sent white people black doctors and black people, white doctors, and you know, other combinations. And the answer is, they didn't make a difference. People are actually perfectly capable of separating these things, so they seem to be. So that, that, that doesn't mean it's going to happen in political space where people don't trust anything, but in healthcare, people are actually, so in a lot of social messaging, people are actually willing to discount so, so the, there was really the only effect of sending a, a black doctor versus a white doctor to a white Republican is the white Republicans are more willing to make donations to black charities. So that's the only thing that was significant. Otherwise, it really didn't make a difference. So I think that 
that's I think what is this is highlighting is that people actually judge are willing to say this is a doctor. It says what what he does on the screen, doctor at such and such place, and so. A credibility matters, not surprisingly. Nice experiment to show that by some of our students. Uh, they, it's a very nice experiment where they, um, they were shown a projection for CDC, the Center for Disease Control, about how many people are expected to die from COVID. And uh, then um, uh, in addition, they were shown both what President Trump, who fortunately randomized his statements. Uh, so, so sometimes he, he, he was, he was, he would say, he would say uh, things about, you know, yes, we should take this disease seriously. Sometimes they say, no, we can just take Lysol or whatever. He had uh, interesting theories. So we, we could randomize what message of, they could randomize what message of President Trump was sent to these people. And you can see that where basically when you send Trump saying nonsense, people stop listening to the Center for Disease Control. So uh, credibility of the government matters. So one of the things that that implies is that you, in many cases, you really want to know who those people are, the seeds are. So there's a very nice paper by Ben Yishai and Mubarak showing basically that it matters if the people who are trying to influence you, you feel understand your situation. So with doctors, maybe everybody understands that they understand COVID, they see black and white patients. But with most people, you know, you, you may, may not believe that they understand your situation and therefore it might actually make a difference. So it may very well be. So credibility is connected to understanding whether you actually live in, uh, function in the same context as other people. Um, there's also this other nice experiment showing that, uh, you know, when it's a celebrity uh, passing on a message, it makes a very big, on Twitter, this experiment, very nice experiment, uh, showing that basically uh, when the message comes from a celebrity, per se, it really makes no difference. But if the celebrity actually takes the trouble to say it in his own voice, so he's not just resending somebody else's message, then it makes a difference. So in other words, it's exactly the logic of credibility. You're credible when you put a cost into doing it. It's when it's too cheap for you. So in other words, celebrities may want to be careful about what they endorse. If they endorse everything, then it doesn't mean very much. It has to be that they put some effort into it. So credibility has this implication that you want to ration. So I'm almost, uh, I'm almost out of time and almost out of things to say, uh, which is perfect. Um, so I think we've learned a lot in this uh, journey, not we, our journey, but I think the collective field of how to send individual messages. I think we've learned both to be skeptical of certain kinds of exact manipulation, but also you know, this idea of using seeds and to use gossips. I think we've learned some important and useful things. I think where we haven't learned is how to combine messages. And that's sort of, a, if I want to say where all, all the uh, difficulty is, is that in a sense, no one message is always sent. You can send a message, but somebody else is already sending another message. So how do you design uh, messages to both counteract other messages, how to place it in the context of many messages. And that's something we haven't at all 
Uh, there's really no work on this. So I would say that where we are really, uh, really, uh, I think, and, and you, for example, if you, you know, when I sent a message as the celebrity, I was, I, nobody had got a message from me before. So it was novel. But if I keep sending messages every week, will, they will quickly stop dele start deleting them very fast. <laughs> so, and in fact, uh, yeah, uh, they were, uh, yeah. Uh, so, so in some sense, uh, you can see already that, you know, uh, they were willing to, um, you know, I think the, the novelty value of it was that they started the video, they saw my picture, and they almost always stopped there. But it reminded them of things that they already knew. And that's, that's sort of why it effect, where was effective. And I think in particular, we, what we, another thing we don't know anything about is two ways, two-way communications. We, we really, you know, how do you get people to ask questions? How do you get people to understand things one level deeper and to join in conversations? I think this is where I think all of uh, the work has sort of uh, needs to go. Is it needs to go towards more this the idea that we are actually in the middle of a conversation. People are saying different things. Uh, you are trying to be heard within that. You're trying to get people to engage with your message. You want them to speak. If people, I think the psychology experiment evidence is that when people speak back to you, they are much more engaged with the material. So getting them to be engaged is. Uh, critical. I think every professor knows that. Um, and, and so I think we are, I think in some ways, we, it's, a, it's a very exciting place to be in the sense that I think we are, we've learned a lot in the last uh, 10 years or so. And I think we're also a place where I think it's clear to understand, clear what, what we need to learn. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you for listening. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you, Abhijit, for that uh, wide-ranging and stimulating discussion. In fact, I'm surprised you said there's no connection between Lewis and the work you presented, because information transmission in social networks and how that would affect, for example, migration, it's something that uh, you know, uh, people have been working on. So I think it underpins a lot of uh, economic uh, uh, decisions, and therefore this work is clearly related to that. Uh, I would like to open the floor for questions. So uh, if you uh, just raise your hand, identify yourself, um, I will go sequentially. And then we'll, of course, have uh, online questions too. So let me start. Um, uh, Blue Jack, if you just introduce yourself and ask your question, keep it brief though. Thank you, Professor, for a very interesting Here you are trying to research anonymous message, anonymous methodology, and your intentions are all proper. But I see less and less fake news in our web. I wonder whether the government of India is being so successful in implementing the citizens that the epidemic was wonderful in handle, we hardly had any deaths, it's all fake news.
So what are they doing right? And why do people like you have to research so much to reach answers, which may or may not be effective? Do they have the magic formula we don't need? I, I, I think not. I, I think that it's, I think it's precisely, I think people, I, I, I've said this uh, in many other contexts, people really like not being told that their life is awful. I, I think they're playing a lot on that. I, I think we, it's an easier message to deliver that you are really lucky to be where you are. I think it's an easier message to deliver. I, I think that's why you're going to always have this um, uh, asymmetry. So I, I, I think that unpleasant truths are difficult to deliver. And I think um, that's not to say that we should stop trying to do it. It just means that, uh, that the ba battle is that much harder. Uh, thank you so much, Ashley, and it's so nice to meet you today and listen to you. What I wanted to ask was how much of a cultural context has a role to play in social messaging. For example, like a country like the US may have like a more individualistic society, so uh, messaging around masks might not be effective, but like you know, social community-based country like India might be more effective that uh, because people may want to protect their elders or children. I mean, well, what we found was people in the US were very willing to, you know cut their travel to protect their elders. I, 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 I mean, you know, I am sure it's going to make a difference, the context. What, what I was trying to say is that I think we saw a bunch of cases where, you know, the experiments were either in India or, I mean, actually I mentioned some in Africa and some in, and I, what's striking is how, how much there were, how similar uh, some of the results were. Not, not that they'd have to be, and I'm sure, as you, I mean, you're exactly right in saying that, you know, the, um, the uh, you know, certain messages will resonate in a certain particular way. This was the previous question, in a sense, is there's always in the background a set of, you know, what we want, what we want to hear, et cetera. So those, those will matter. I, I don't have a, uh, but I, I think it's interesting to see that um, people are remarkably able to discount a lot of uh, noise that we're adding to their videos, in a sense. I mean, they thought there was noise. Okay, yes. Hi, Professor. Uh, I'm Sarah from the media and communication. And I was wondering, you touched rightly upon the social messaging aspect, and I was also wondering if you could throw some light on political, economic that runs behind that, and also how. While you are disseminating the message, how do you kind of play between the imagined audiences that you are targeting and also the kind of real audiences that perhaps might benefit from the message? Uh, what do you mean by that? I didn't understand. What, what's the imagined audience? Uh, Sorry, explain. Uh, yeah, so, so for example, while you are researching and while you are kind of targeting a particular audience, of course, there's cultural context and social political uh, aspect that comes into picture. but Within that change, there's always this fluctuation that happens in the meaning-making process, which kind of delivers or maybe in some sense also restricts the messaging. Mm -hmm. How do you weigh out that? I mean, I, I guess I, I don't, I, I haven't, what I was, maybe I still haven't understood is 
where the trade-off is. I mean, you, you always have to weigh the, uh, if, you, if you speak uh, Swahili in, in uh, India, you, people won't understand it. And I, I mean, you have to weigh the social context. I don't think there's an, a second way to do it. I mean, everything is going to be, that, that's a sense in which all translation is also a, a, a creation. Uh, and there's no mechanical translation of any idea, but I, I don't think there is, there's a choice there. I don't think we, we sort of weigh, okay, shall I do literally what I did in Kenya, in India? The answer is always going to be no. Okay, there were a couple of questions. Yes, please. Thank you, Professor. My name is Alejandro. I am from Mexico. I study Japan, and I wanted to ask you about if there's evidence for messaging and insurance, health insurance update. And also I wanted to know if the, you think that polarization is a challenge and how to address it. And finally, these learnings imply that we have to review <coughs> economics curricula or perhaps foster more transdisciplinary collaboration. Uh, you know, and then the health insurance, I don't have much to say. Uh, on polarization, I mean, uh, polarization, surely it's a, it's, a, it's a core concern. I think we were, I would say, o overly concerned in a sense, because we were, we were playing the game as if, you know, we expected certain cues to be very important. And those cues would be important, especially in a polarized context. And in a sense, we found less less response to the skills than I expected. So I, 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 I'm, I think surely you can tailor your messages. You know, there are always dog whistles of certain kinds, but I, I think that within the range of things that we were considering, there was not much of a, much of a, a response. I, th I think it was mostly, I was struck by how, how, how much, you know, various groups who have very different underlying behaviors. It's not that the levels are the same, but the responses were very similar from many of them. Yes, please. Um, yeah. Um, thanks for the so, My question is about the four elements of um, social communication. So the kind of message and who the target audience is and so on. My question is, is there merit in there being a fifth question, which is, is the message significantly in the public interest to communicate it in the first place, because I presume asking or communicating messages like vaccines in the deep sound very active doing that can be construed as divisive or political, even though the message itself is very important. I mean, absolutely. Uh, I, I don't think we were insensitive to that. I think we felt we were worried about it. We were also particularly interested in reassuring the the black population who were the who were dying at a astronomical rate actually that th this message was sent by people who had an appreciation of their context and problems so I, I think it's always a trade-off you could be planned and then you can avoid highlighting social divisions um, and that comes with the cost that you also don't acknowledge social divisions, which has its uh, downside. So I, I don't know that there is any magic solution to that. I think we learned that we didn't gain anything from it. And in retrospect, we wouldn't have done it. But I don't think that we knew that. And that's useful to know. Uh, my question revolves around like now here we are calculating the average treatment effect. However, 
humans inherently are different and there will always be a personality which will act as a moderator so how are we ensuring that whatever treatment we are giving it should be catered to each and every individual and the messages are catered to them and can technology and since there's a lot of big data in the space today how technology can also use that uh, in recommender systems of messages and stuff like that how do you see that as a yeah, so I, i think that's a good question i think it's um surely uh, i think you could imagine instead of trying to do our amateurish tailoring of the message you could imagine tailoring the message to you know you know different subgroups you could use um uh call what's called a causal forest to figure out which groups are responding to which message and it may well be that on average they uh, are the same but across different groups different messages work we 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 definitely um could go back and look at that and then use that information i think we were mostly um quite in uh uh we wanted to get the answers out of it that you know to encourage people to do more messaging but I, it's a fair point i think that we could do more okay lots of questions we'll take a few more and then there are online ones yes yeah um okay so uh i'm going to do one talk um i wanted to ask even though the studies that you do on social messaging are done for positive purposes given that given that your research and its outcomes are widely you know are public and available how can anyone ensure that the principles for effective social messaging that you find are not used for malicious purposes by businesses or you know for the spread of misinformation by governments or social media companies you can't and uh, i mean you could i don't think that uh, i i i i think that once you go down that rabbit hole there is no exit i mean you can think of if you want to imagine anything you do ha- could have consequences that you don't like and i i i i i feel that that's uh, i think first we don't understand uh the world well enough to be manipulative i i, I mean i grew up with people who were completely uh, arguing uh that you shouldn't do anything to help the poor because that's going to bring the revolution closer and uh not kidding you uh moitri shot to group with the same people in fact uh, so so you know uh, i I've, i've sort of felt like you know i don't know when the revolution is going to come and how to make it come about so i'm going to hold my uh peace on that one and just you know do good when i can there was a question there and then at the back yeah so Uh hi I'm thinking of how we can transpose this idea to the sphere of monetary policy making and specifically forward guidance about setting future expectations uh in a field where and you know with the fed or the ecb you have 10 12 different voices talking about future interest rates and trying to sell the ideas is there any way wherein we can mitigate the risk mitigate the risk of confusion amongst people uh in a sorry setting so inherent to many messages you know I'm going to Uh, let tim talk about it since he has more experience than me uh, i would say that uh, fa- famously um, monetary policy in the us at least 
has not aimed for clarity. I think ambiguity has been part of the objective of that policy, maybe for the right reason. There are people who argue that you should keep people guessing, actually. Uh, but but uh, maybe Tim has something to add to that. He, he has certainly much more insight into this than I do. Okay, he's refusing. Hi, um, thank you so much for being here. I'm Alejandra. First of all, I wanted to say it feels really refreshing to hear someone in person that you've read so much from. So thanks again for being here today. And I guess one of my main takeaways from today is the role of the seeders and how seeding may be more effective than telling everyone. But I'm wondering, to what extent do you think that a message that is communicated by a seeder gets um, to its entirety to the next person. What I mean is, can you get the message kind of lost in translation? Do you have a risk that that message is not going to be completely well communicated to the end person that should actually receive that message? What's that risk? And then the second question is tied to an earlier one regarding cultural differences, because in the case of the US, it didn't really matter um, who the seeder was. But what if you go to a cultural context where there's a lot of respect for just a certain person within a village or a community? Or what about a situation in which you're talking about a very sensitive topic such as, I don't know, I was thinking contraception, for instance, or just like more specifically women-related issues. How do you choose the appropriate seater there? And yeah, how do you go about that? Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I should say that... Um, it's not the U.S. that were these experiments that I on seeding. There were none of them were done in the U.S. And so it's so the in particular we did the experiment on immunization, which is very much a sensitive topic, and are seen as a, in, in as well in the U.S. Of course, very much. Um, it's only sixty-four percent of the U.S. is fully vaccinated against COVID. Or, uh, so that's a. It's not a. It's a sensitive topic, but but I think that this was a. Uh, and we found that the gossips did just fine, to be honest. So that's that's point number one. Point number two is we do have a little bit of data on this question of how good the transmission is. So if you, I remember the I was talking about the West Bengal experiment where they were, so. It, the way we did that experiment is worked with the two cell phone companies, which basically help the market in West Bengal. Okay, one is um, one is Geo and the other is Airtel, and we work with Geo, and but we also had people in the villages we knew uh, who had Airtel, so we could look at the impact on the Airtel people in treated villages compare it to the places where they were uh, compared to Airtel people in other villages. And you get the impact is exactly the same. So the communication was pretty good. Okay, let's take some online questions and we'll come back to. Thank you. Uh, the first question is from N MD Weinberg. Is there evidence that strong relationships impact absorption of information, e.g., ongoing interactions over time with the community healthcare worker having more impact on behaviour than a single message from a doctor outside the community or from a celebrity? It's, a, it's an excellent question. I don't think there is any experimental evidence answering that question. There should be, but there isn't. 
Yeah, please go. Okay, another one from Yvonne McPherson. RCTs can measure impact of particular communication output. Conclusions are limited in their generalizability as the quality of the communication would vary so much as with the audience preferences. So then what is the value of these studies? Generalizability is limited. I think um, David Hume uh, in 1783 wrote about this problem that nothing is uh, perfectly generalizable because there's always, the world could always change. The sun, he, his example was the fact that the sun rose the last few weeks. It was in the UK, so maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Um, it was in Scotland. Um, but it doesn't imply they will rise tomorrow. So I think generalizability is always a little bit of an act of faith. But I, I don't see any reason, any other form of knowledge that's not subject to that criticism. So I, I'm, I'm going to um, not engage in that conversation any further. Mm -hmm. Okay, another one from Alison Norwood. Uh, thank you for an interesting talk. Can you comment on what works better, positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement in messaging? It's an interesting, there's a lot of experiments on that. So I think it seems to vary across um, how bad it is. So if it's a little bit bad, then I think negative reinforcement works better. And if it's a really bad, then positive reinforcement works better. If you have cancer, then saying that you can survive is more important than, than you know, uh, the you know you if you don't do this thing you'll surely die it doesn't work very well but if it's something something that's I think that's the there's actually many people who have done that particular set of experiments <laughs> I may be getting it backward but I don't think so okay let's take a few more questions uh, from the audience uh, okay yes please. Um, thank you for a wonderful talk, Professor. Uh, I'm from thank the you. Department of International Development, and I had a question specific to the West Bengal research. Um, so I, I was wondering if uh, people who you would consider marginalized, say like women or even uh, Dalit communities, for example, uh, were there any noticeable effects uh, on whether or not they were part of the same networks, like whether the gossips um, or even the seeds, if they had equal access to those networks? Were there any effects you observed? Yeah, so uh, in, the, in the West Bengal study, we had no way of knowing that. These were really uh, too, the studies are too big to really do that. In other studies, uh, I think that um, it, there is a correlation between, in particular with, with where you live, and that's correlated with um, social status. So people are from excluded communities often live on, are excluded geographically. So you do see those are strongly connected to the, to the network. So, uh, on the other hand, I saw a paper, so yesterday, which is a um, very nice paper by Arun Chandrasekhar, Emily Breza, and uh, uh, M.R. Sharan, showing basically that when you randomly make a village 
head of the village government to be a from the from the scheduled caste in India, then um, overall um, the amount of information that seems to reach the uh, the scheduled caste. Uh, communities in terms of certain opportunities goes down, but overall the uh, the spending patterns become improve actually. So this and so is so it seems to be that yes, there's some value to targeting, you know, targeting uh, messages to uh, you know different people because they will use information differently. Okay. Um. At the back, yes. Hi, um, thank you so much for a wonderful talk. My question is regarding um, information overload and the polarization, there is now a tendency um, like in multiple countries for people to just rely on a particular news outlet so my question is whether the studies in the U.S. showed any correlation between mainstream media consumption and the effects of the messages sent. And if that were the case, how, how does one go to overcome this barrier? Yeah, so I think that there are experiments where we basically make people you know, not watch Fox News or something. So there, <laughs> there are papers. Uh, or um, one of our students, uh, Dong Hee Jo, has a paper on what happens if um, in Korea, if you are forced to consume, uh, or not forced, you're offered free access to a media source that you would not consume. And I think in all cases, the evidence is that you do change your views. So the choice of the media source is um, sort of self-fulfilling in a sense. You you learn what, what the media source, if you choose a media source uh, and you watch it, you, you get reinforced in a particular set of beliefs that made you choose it in the first place. So I, I, I do think that some diversity Kind of, if it if there's a way to engineer more diversity, that that has value. Okay. <clears throat> Further questions? Let me take a few from that end as well. Yes, please. Um, thank you, uh, thank you, My question, uh, not just in terms of uh, communication uh, now, but also in terms of our research translation efforts at JPL. Uh, to what extent do you think that there's a tendency towards simplification of messages, and do you believe that there's some sort of trade-off? with the nuances of academic research involved in that particular communication? To be honest, no. I think we do a pretty bad job of simplification. We, we, I think uh, my instinct is to say that uh, overall, uh, when I speak for myself, when I, uh, I go back and read my paper, which I thought I had written in plain language, Turns out that I hadn't. So I, I'm going to say that if anything, I I think we are we 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 fall on the side of doing. We we don't even know uh, often the vocabulary we use is so loaded and so potent. So I, I'm 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 mostly uh, of the view that we do too little uh, on sim uh, on communicating relative to what we should. Mm. Uh, 
inequities and differences between different groups. In your personal esteemed opinion, why do you think there was no difference in response between different racial groups or political groups in the COVID-19 studies that you ran? Well, I, I think that if you think that people are, uh, you know, some people have the information and others don't, and the most naive interpretation, I think it's probably the right one that, you know, some of them, uh, in, in fact, if, if I, I mean, there's no reason why if you give people information, they should not, you know, some fraction of those people have the information and others will, you know, uh, some people don't want to listen to it and some people do. And it's not clear to me that we should presume that the response to information would be different, even, even if, uh, you know, even if the uh, the underlying set of conditions are different. Pe people might very well be um, have the same motivation for listening or not listening. I don't. I, I don't per se. I don't see there necessarily. There's a. I mean, uh, there should necessarily be a difference. Yes, please. Thank you so much for the talk. Uh, I have a question regarding the effectiveness during crisis. So, for example, in the in the periods of high economic instability or a pandemic like we had or a natural disaster, would we expect communication to be more effective from the government, for example, or less effective? And a follow-up question, uh, does it have matter the political regime that each country has on, on the credibility of communications? Uh, also in the context of crisis, again, not crisis. I, mean, I, I think the Trump example was a good, good one there. I think if you have someone undermining himself, then it's going to be harder to communicate. And well, the point there was that it was the, the information was not coming from Trump. It was coming from the Center for Disease Control. But just Trump uh, flailing around or, or had uh, made people more skeptical about uh, about what the other government institutions were saying. Okay, let's take a few more online questions. We, are, we don't have that much time, so. Okay, um, there's one from Lewis Moray. RCTs have proven to be a very useful thing in development economics. What is their potential to improve other areas of policy evaluation? For example, net zero policy. I, I think that RCTs are increasingly being used in every kind of policy. I mean, our grow, biggest growing area is RCTs in the U.S. actually, not in development. You know? So I, I don't think, I think there's no reason why they would not be used and they are being used. I have one from Ruby Ruiz. Thanks, Professor, for your work, and thanks for the LSE for sharing your work with the whole world. How important and deep is this? The mask never mentioned in this kind of messages, he said. Okay, let's just read one. Um, so one from Ron John Handik says, do, do we rely upon social messaging in intergenerational gap? I think, yes. I think the, the technology, I mean... Fox News is, um, you know, look at the profile of who watches them. They're uh, they're even older than me. <laughs> if you if you can believe it's possible, but mm. okay, we have a time for a few uh, questions from the audience. Yes, please. 
Thank you. Um, great presentation. Um, Alex Sutherland, Behavioural Insights Team. Um, I'm really curious. You had some amazing results, um, particularly on the uh, the messaging for the uh, uh, the healthcare in in West Bengal. I'm curious about what happened next. So did the government take up the messaging? Did they roll it out? And if not, why not? I, they did roll it out. But again, I say that, you know, the problem is we did multiple rounds of messaging afterwards. We, we did a bunch of them. The problem is precisely pre preserving the novelty because otherwise I think people very quickly get inured to it. So I, I think it's really, that's the delicate balance is you, can, you can't message too much because then it becomes nothing. So, we, but yes, we sent out, I think, two more sets of messages after that. Thank you. Thank you so much for the talk. I've definitely learned so much about effective messaging. Thank you. What I'm quite curious about is um, how do you adapt social messaging or existing social messaging over time with changing developments in crises, especially now with COVID, with different strains and all sorts? It's an excellent question. It's exactly, I started by saying that essentially you first had to say, don't must are not needed. Then you had to say must are needed and so on. And so there was, a, so it made it harder, obviously. So I, I don't know that, unfortunately, there is no choice because, I mean, part of what makes a crisis a crisis is precisely the fact that we don't know uh, the parameters of what, what we are facing. And we're learning on the go. So, you know, it, it is what it is. I don't have, a, I don't have a, any magic bullet for that, other than the fact that I think what I've, I've been impressed by is if you, uh, people seem to listen quite carefully and, uh, you know, they get the message. I don't think it's the case that uh, surprisingly, even on something like COVID, where there was enormous amount of noise in the US, you do see people you know, paying enough attention to the information. I mean, not not everybody and not as much as they should, but maybe, uh, it's still striking to me. Okay, last one or two questions, yes. Thank you so much for your talk today. I was wondering in relation to the gossips and the placing of seeds, how did that change if you were able to look at it in a situation like COVID where social networks were disrupted, especially when gossips might be effective simply because they're out and about and being social. And when you're being told to stay home, how did you measure the impact of varied communication? Yeah, so I, I, I think it's an excellent question. I don't know the answer to that. Other than, I mean, of course, it's not clear that communication went down. People, you know, became even more reliant on social media as a result of that. That's uh, so maybe they were using other means to communicate. I mean, People have a, I mean, I, I have a, a ir, you know, irreducible uh, urge to talk to people. So, <laughs> okay, one or two, yeah. Hi, well, thank you very much for the talk. Uh, my name is Maria Fernanda. Uh, I'm from Peru, and I actually have like one very straightforward question. I wanted to know whether you found any pattern, like profiling pattern of the gossip, uh, like. People? <laughs> yeah, so we we did look a little bit at that. Not very, uh, not very clear. I, I think it's a lot of what we did find is that is there are rarely people who are very busy. So that, 
Not surprising. Okay, one last question, really. Uh, there are too many that we can fit in in two and a half minutes, allowing for an answer. So uh, I'm, I'm going to randomize. Uh, you'll have to trust me on that. <laughs> okay. Yes, please. Uh, black, black. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, thank you so much for that talk, uh, Professor. Um, this question is for the methods nerds who are out here. Um, you started your talk by saying that part of the reason why you ventured into some of these questions was because COVID happened and our cities, as they would traditionally perhaps have taken place, were disrupted. So based on the pandemic in the past, the developments of the past two years, do you see any sort of fundamental shift in um, the how or the what or the whys of the field of RCTs moving forward? Yeah, so uh, that's a classic, uh, you know, low uh, ball. So I'm, I'm happy to take that question. It's, a, it, it does, it's an easy one. Uh, we, yes, that's just very, very much that I think we learned a lot from, uh, from, the, uh, from how to do, for example, how to use, you know, one thing, um, just how to use technology in different ways, uh, you know, both more online, but also just when you're interviewing people, how to do it without, you know, sitting next to them. But you want to show them, for example, a, a picture and have them evaluate it. How do you do that without sitting next to them? And so using tablets, just very, very mundane things make a difference, right? You can pass a tablet to someone who's six feet away, and they can look at the picture on the tablet and react to it. And, um, and these kinds of things, and what you do in bright sunlight, is it really gets down to the very nitty gritties of, uh, you know, what kind of tablet you can use in bright sunlight, for example. So it's, it's, we've learned a lot, I feel. Um, and now I think we have lots of people have pivoted to using the other thing that we learned about a lot was how to use kind of data that's collected by governments uh, kind of routinely. So much more, um, you know, public sources of data. And I think a lot of work has moved towards using, you know, for example, we, we managed to persuade um, the Indonesian government to put a question on the national survey. And uh, that's a one way to get uh, you know, a massive uh, uh, sample of answers. So yes, so I think we've learned a lot. I'm uh, I'm optimistic that we're going to come out with. Um, I think we were kind of happy in the group we were, and now then we're pushed out of the group, and that's sometimes good for you. Thank you. Um, that was a really wide-ranging set of questions and wonderful discussion. So it's interesting. One of our biggest first published paper was the economics of rumors. So in a sort of, you know, somewhat uh, circuitous way, we have come back to his work has come to the gossip and networks and so on. So thank you everybody for attending this event, uh, those in person, as well as those who joined online. I'm sorry, I, we couldn't fit in all the questions, but I think we got a um, reasonably good sample of, of the set of things he provoked. So a round of applause to Abhijit for this wonderful event. Thank you for listening. 
you can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.